From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Milady is in the house. If you've got a question for Father, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985 and you can always send us an email openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams Michael McCall producing the program your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts so if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook live you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is here every Thursday, Father Brian Milady. How are you? I thank you. And um, we were having a little discussion about the various ways that angels are depicted in art. And, yes. Uh, you're going to paint a word picture for us today of the <laughs> angels. Yes, I wanted to talk about the angels because, of course... We're coming up to the Feast of the Archangels, and then we're also coming up to the Feast of the Guardian Angels. And I think this is, a, for some reason, a problematic concept for some people today. I remember I was teaching in a seminary uh, once, and uh, on the Feast of the Angels, the students came in and said, do we still believe in angels? And I said, sure, because the celebrant told us that Angels were just symbolic; they weren't real, so we didn't have. There were no beings called angels, and I said, "Well, my goodness, the angels are testified to both in reason and in scripture." In reason, uh, Aristotle didn't call them angels. Obviously, the term comes from the fact that they're messengers, and it's a very generic term. It's not a specific term, and it refers to both those who worship God in heaven and those who bring special messages to me on earth, and also the fact, you know, every institution, like the police and the firemen and the country, all these uh, institutions have their own angel. But the way that Aristotle discovered them, and this is by reason, not by faith, uh, first of all, when we began to learn about the world and nature, we were left only with the material beings. And then, as St. Thomas says in the physics, Aristotle discovered at the end of the study without looking for it, the existence of God. So, pagan man goes out into the world in his five senses like a man goes into a field to dig a grave, and he's surprised to discover that you can't explain material, changeable beings 
merely by material changeable beings. There has to be one unchangeable being who in no way participates in matter. So as soon as that discovery was made, which of course is a revolution in the history of philosophy, we knew there had to be another science than the science of physics. And so they discovered a further science, which is the science that comes beyond physics, because it's about primarily beings that don't depend on materialism to exist or to be known, and that is metaphysics. Once a person discovers that, if they look at the hierarchy of what's possible in creation, you have the animals who are only physical, then you have man who's not only physical, but also spiritual, and then at the top of the pyramid you have God, and so it's reasonable to suppose that there must be things that exist in creation, in nature, that aren't God and that aren't, have no matter connected to them. And these are the angels. The fact of the existence of the angels is open to reason. In the Middle Ages, when they began to try to discuss this, when philosophy issues came up again, big time in Christianity. They tried to understand the angels, and many people said, well, angels have a kind of spiritualized matter. When Thomas Aquinas came along, he said, this is impossible. You can't have a spiritualized matter. And so this is what led him to his famous insight into metaphysics, where he stated clearly that that a thing exists and what a thing is are really distinct. Because the only distinction in the angels would be the difference between that they exist and what they are, because in God, the two are the same. So uh, then there was a whole section you know, from Scripture in the Fathers in which these beings were discussed. St. Paul says, for example, that the angels promulgated the Old Testament. In other words, they defined it and gave it to man. You know, you have angels all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the later books. Things like Job, wicked angels as well as good angels. You have the book of Enoch, and you have the angels in the book of Revelation. The whole place is loaded with angels. And then you also have, like, the special angels that we know of, Michael, Raphael, and, and Gabriel, and these are special messengers about special messages. So the Christian community came to identify these beings that Aristotle had discovered, also called separated substances, a horrendous philosophical term, but all it means is that they're a substance that's separated from matter, and they also include the spiritual soul of man after death, that they exist in the sense in their own right, and that though they had a beginning, that they will have no end. And this was identified then with the whole expression of the angels in Holy Scripture. And furthermore, since the angels uh, not only worship God in heaven, but they also come to protect and guide us, it's always been a very consoling truth to me that I learned about the guardian angels when I was in the second, first grade in Catholic school because we used to say the prayer to the guardian angels, I still do before I travel,
And you know how little kids are. When we found out we had an angel, each of us, we'd se- try to separate a little place on the bench for our angel to sit. <laughs> because these, you think about the marvelous care of God, that he loves each one of us so much that he entrusts us to this angelic being that certainly is more intelligent than we are, more powerful than we are, and is this absolutely perfect sort of uh, being in the spiritual sense that, um, that learns in an absolutely wonderful way. That's why the choirs of angels, they don't abstract from their experiences like we do, but they receive knowledge from the higher angels and the lower angels, depending on what their place is in the heavenly court. So on the feasts, as we approach the Feast of the Angels, we need to thank God for this wonderful mystery. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says it's de fide. You have to believe in the angels by faith. And, of course, the wicked angels are a whole other discussion. But, as you know, they have a lowerarchy, just as the choirs of angels are a hierarchy. The most awful angel being, of course, the most perfect being, but the one who betrayed his being by his own will, Satan. So let us thank God for all that we receive from him, but especially on this uh, occasion, you know, these days as we're approaching this, a novena of the angels for the angels. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Pick up the phone. Give us a call. Um, if you would like, you can uh, send us an email. That email address is openline, all one word, openline at EWTN.com. And if you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205-271-2985. It's EWTN's open line Thursday. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Church Pop takes a fresh and fun look at the news shaping our world, featuring engaging, inspiring, and informative Catholic social media content. You can find it on Snapchat, Instagram, and on the web at churchpop.com. And you can even get Church Pop directly in your email inbox. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. First up is Joe in Long Island, New York, listening at EWTN.com. Joe, you're on with Father Brian. Well, uh, good afternoon, Father. Um, My question has to do, and I hope you're doing well today, my question has to do with receiving communion in a pro- I'm Catholic I have uh, um, question has to do with receiving communion in a Protestant church I know a thousand percent we have the Eucharist I know that the Eucharist that the receiving communion in the Protestant church is not the Eucharist as we understand it to be body blood soul and divinity I had heard a while ago on Father Groeschel, a repeat of Father Groeschel's show, that he cited something that Pope Benedict XVI said about it, and said that it was okay for a Catholic to receive communion in a Protestant church. And that's that's my question. Um, did I hear that right? I believe I did because I heard it twice. <laughs> uh, I seriously doubt that, frankly, um, because it's you know it's a public act of worship, and what you're basically saying is you agree with their doctrine. Um, it may he may have been talking about a Catholic, I mean a, a non-Catholic receiving communion in a Catholic church. There are certain instances where that might be. But it doesn't work the other way around, <laughs> because we have the fullness of faith, and in the uh, you know, if a person is in danger of death and they manifest faith in the Catholic position of the Eucharist, um, and they also can't have access to their minister, or in certain cases during weddings, sometimes a person may be admitted to receiving Holy Communion or if they have a special permission of the bishop. But uh, normally that's not the case. And it certainly isn't the case the other way around, because it's an act of apostasy. So I um, don't know what you're referring to. I believe it was probably a non-Catholic receiving communion in a Catholic church, and not the other way around. God bless Joe. Thanks for so much for the question today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Mike writes in, "How do we know that we are go- that we are doing the will of God the Father? How do we discern his will in our life?" Well, basically, first of all, you do what the church recommends that you do. You frequent the sacraments and all those things. Other than that, you basically have to just pray and uh, look at all your options. Uh, If it's a question of something where you have several different possibilities, at least the Jesuit way of doing discernment, which would not be mine exactly, but it's to list the pros and cons of all of them, especially regarding the spiritual life and then make your decision accordingly. And I think the reason St. Ignatius used that, of course it was something he practiced, but 
even then you're not absolutely certain it's the will of the Holy Spirit uh, for various reasons. But at least you thought about it a lot and deeply and tried to see and discern what the will of God might be for you. But, you know, do we have an absolute certainty we're doing it? Well, we have a relative certainty that if we um, are trying to avoid sin and trying to practice grace in what we're attempting to do, and, of course, it isn't disobedient to the church or anything like that, which is a part of the discernment that we're doing the will of God. Other than that, uh, usually... Um, if you've tried various things and hit dead ends, you can be pretty sure it wasn't the will of God. <laughs> and there have been occasions, at least in my life, where I've been transferred uh, to another situation or another job and I haven't wanted to go. But, um, you know, I basically prayed I'd be accepting of this, not always freely or happily. But usually after I went, I discovered that God was right and I was wrong. And there are things I would not necessarily have chosen for myself, but he knew what he was doing. So if you tried everything and you've hit this willow wall, you need to try to think about something else and uh, pray again and ask God to help you to discern whether this might not be a better path for you. But you have to use your intelligence. Prayer isn't going to work without you thinking about it. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Um, Adam is a little confused, Father. He said, Catholics say that all people are children of God, but the Gospel of John says that only those who are baptized are the children of God. Which is it? All right, well, the thing is, I'd have to look at this text. Uh, I don't know what you mean by children of God. Um, certainly, all people are made in the image and likeness of God. And I don't quite know what text it is where John just says we're all children of God. Um, again, it might be an interpolation. But the point is that since we're made creatures with a spirit, with a body that we all have an eternal destiny and that God loved each one of us individually into existence and because we have a reasoning soul, only he can create the soul, which of course is also an act of love. Now, we also have free will. So it's possible for us to be created the image and likeness of God and to have our freedom disagree with our nature. In other words, the will against what we know the law of God to be or we know our creation to be about or something like that to do evil. And also, the doorway to being freed from that evil, the primary source of that evil, is when we're born again, which means in baptism. So all those who receive valid baptism would be children of God in the sense that they could now actively pursue the destiny of their souls through seeking to go to heaven because they've got grace. So you have, first of all, being a child of God in the sense that you're not an animal or an angel. Uh, 
that you're a human being with a reasoning soul. And then you secondly got the fact that this is made more complete and more perfect in the sacrament of baptism in which the Holy Spirit himself enters into our interior life. So that would probably be the source of the distinction you're referring to. Uh, next up for us is the Republic of Texas. Stephanie is in San Antonio, listening on Guadalupe Radio today. Stephanie, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, I had a question um, regarding divine mercy. Um, why don't more priests and why? In some parishes, I'm not having a little trouble with your phone there, Stephanie. I think she's. She's curious as to why uh, you hear a lot about divine mercy in some parishes and hardly anything at all in other parishes. Well, if you mean the devotion to divine mercy, as practiced by Sister Faustina, uh, it's it's certainly uh, approved by the Church. John Paul II uh, pushed it so much so that now we've changed our liturgical calendar to have it be Mercy Sunday. But it is, after all... Um, a, a devotion that's um, individual in a certain sense. And so, uh, much as the curious with the rosary, the popes have recommended the rosary for centuries, but not all people feel called to say the rosary, and some, you know, they don't relate to it as a prayer. Well, you can relate to any prayer that helps you. So the devotion to divine mercy is a very good devotion. It's one that's practiced by many people, Mother Angelica certainly had a great appreciation for it, and it's reached the level of uh, church acceptance to the extent that it's altered the, what we, how we call a certain Sunday of the year, but that doesn't mean every single person has to have the same devotion to it, and some priests relate to it and some priests don't, and the ones that don't, um, they could just help their congregation to do so. Because, again, we recognize that the laity its become very important to them. But if you don't do that, it's like the rosary, as I say. It's a devotion which can have been helpful to millions of people, but that doesn't mean it's helpful to everyone. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. Again, if you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. Be sure to check out Blessed to Play this Sunday afternoon. 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. This week's guest is Brad Seng. He's a former professional triathlete, and he's now the head triathlon coach at the University of Colorado. And Ron talks with Brad about being a champion, faith-filled Catholic athlete and coach. That's Blessed to Play this Sunday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Mark in West Virginia, Ben, and hopefully we will talk to you as well. One open phone line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 
288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. As advertised, next up is Mark in the great state of West Virginia, a first-time caller listening on Light of Life Radio. Mark, you're on with Father Brian. Hey, thank you very much for taking my call. Uh, The question I have is concerning purgatory. And was just wondering where the the church, what scripture um, does the church use to justify the teaching of purgatory? All right, the traditional scripture passage is Second Maccabees chapter twelve, verse forty-two to forty-five. And if you recall, uh, though the Protestants consider this to be apocrypha, it still happened. All right that during a uh, battle, the Maccabees, um, in defending uh, you know, the purity of the law of the Old Testament, a number of people were killed, and Judas discovered under their clothing amulets to pagan gods. And he took this to mean that uh, though they were good people because they were fighting for the Israeli law, you know, at the time, the Hebrew law, that they still had tendencies that weren't, where their motives weren't perfect. So he had a sacrifice offered for them and the repose of their soul after death because this wasn't exactly a huge sin, but it was sin enough to have to be atoned for. And so the statement is made, it's a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead. And the Christian tradition has always been clear that prayers for the dead can be efficacious, that we are in touch with the dead while we're on earth, and that what we can do is aid in their purification, which now can only be passive, or in purgatory can only be passive, but now can be active and passive. It's possible for a person to experience their purgatory on earth for example, by the way in which they suffer a final illness or when they lose all their money or something like that. And the, uh, the analogy often used for this is, uh, remember, it's not about atoning for sin, especially mortal sin. That's all done in confession here on earth. It's about a person who dies in the state of grace but they have imperfections left over from their life here on earth. They're called temporal punishment for sin. So a good example would be uh, if you're a man, you have this very close friend, and he has this very prized possession, let's say a beautiful Ferrari. And all of a sudden, in anger and resentment and the imperfection of your life, 
you get furious with this man and you break up his car. Then you're filled with instant remorse and you beg his forgiveness. Your friend is an especially forgiving man and he forgives you. But there's two things that still need to be resolved. One was the disorder in you that led you to commit such a horribly unloving, unfriendly act to someone whom you claim that you love. And the second is the Ferrari still sitting there broken up. And for full atonement to be made, some equivalent of the Ferrari has to be restored to the friend. Now, a similar thing is true of our life here on Earth. We are very close friends with our Lord, and yet there are times when we don't act like Christians. And we can do this with other people or by disobeying God's law or many different ways. We go to confession. Let's say we have some mortal sins, and these are forgiven us. But when we die, we die in the state of grace, we still have things that need to be addressed. And part of it is our moral weakness that led us terribly within ourselves to do this kind of thing. And secondly, someone we may have offended that we can't repay. Uh, once we're dead, obviously, we can't give someone back his life or, or give someone back his fortune or, or something like that. On earth, as I say, we can actively do works to change ourselves, but not once we die. And so that places us in someone who's redeemed, who's on their way to heaven, but still has these residue left over from earth of their egotism. And that's what's atoned for in purgatory. It's passively atoned for. However, because of the infinite treasure of Christ's merit, and also because of our charity, we can, through love, aid these people to experience their purgation much more quickly. And that's what's called indulgences. So the scriptural text for this would all be put up to. Um, it's a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead. Thanks, Mark. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Lorraine in Chicago, Illinois, listening on the EWTN app. Lorraine, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Brian. Mm, hello, Father. I want to ask a question about, about heaven. I was talking to someone. They said they're going to heaven. And does that make that once saved is always saved? Did they know? Did they think they're going to heaven? Uh, all right, well, that's a Protestant position. And the reason is because they don't think grace is a change in you or a new life in you. Remember, for Luther, grace was overlooking your depravity. That was true even of the Blessed Virgin. And so once you've accepted that Jesus is overlooking your depravity, you have a psychological change in you which can't be, can't be lost. So you could commit murder, you could commit adultery, you could commit all those things. And it doesn't alter your psychological confidence that Jesus is overlooking your sins. In other words, there's no growth in charity or anything like that. Now, no Protestant would ever be so crass 
as to say that your works don't matter at all in this. Obviously, you're supposed to do good works. Everybody knows that. But what its place is in the whole drama is very unclear. And it's not unclear for us. We believe that when we're baptized, we receive the Holy Trinity in our souls, and that because we have a soul, a spiritual soul, this spiritual soul seeks final perfection in knowledge especially, and that final perfection in knowledge can only be experienced when we know, as St. Paul says, even as we are known face to face, not through a glass darkly. Now obviously God doesn't have a face, so what does he mean by that? He means that we directly know God's essence, which is what heaven is. But to do that, we have to get there. And grace has given us also to help us to do that. And because of that, we can lose grace or we can get, grow in grace, all those things. So once saved, always saved is true if by that you only mean that now you're free from original sin and you have to work out your salvation in fear and trembling now. But if you mean that freeing from original sin just leaves you completely and totally depraved, then uh, there's no uh, growth at all. And also, it doesn't really matter what you do in a certain sense, that somehow you'll get to heaven, whatever that is. And I'm not really sure that the, that the Protestants really have a fixed idea or understanding of what heaven is. But for us, it's knowledge of God's nature, essence in itself, not through the world and not through faith, but by sight. We walk by faith now and not by sight. Then we shall know even as we are known. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, we head next to Greenville, South Carolina. Jesse is listening on Catholic Radio in South Carolina. Jesse, welcome to the program. You're on with Father Brian. Hi, thank you. Um, my question was, uh, I had won some um, non-precious jewelry in an auction, uh, just kind of like random things, And but it, one of them actually had um, like somebody's ashes in it, and it was a little urn. Uh, like could be worn as a necklace. I'm not sure what to do with it. Um, well, um, I have it buried in reverence. Uh, the ashes, especially in a, in a grave. That makes sense, Jesse. Well, I mean, would I, do I bury it myself or? Uh, well, worst case scenario, yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, it seems to me that you need to get some kind of uh, um, you have no idea if this person had a religion or anything. Is that true? No, and, and I don't ha- there's probably no way of finding out at this point. Yes, all right. Well, yeah, I would personally bury it myself in a place that was not, you know, accessible to a lot of traffic and things like that, yeah. Very good. Thanks, Jesse. We appreciate the call. 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. A couple of open lines for you at 
288-3986. Next up's a first-time caller. Cody is in the great state of Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Cody, you're on with Father Brian. Well, hi. Thank you. Um, I have a question about Matthew 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 9, I think it is. And it talks about, um, call no man father, there's only one father except Jesus oh Christ. Gosh, and yes. and, I, well, and I'm, I'm, I'd like you to explain, I'd like you to explain that for me because I have friends talk to me about that all the time. So. All right. Well, Christ, Christ is not giving a grammar lesson there, okay? Plus the way in which family relationships were interpreted by the Jews is very different than the way they were interpreted by ours. If, if you, if us, if you recall, the whole context is also don't call any man your rabbi because you have only one teacher in heaven, etc. So the idea is that whoever exercises authority here on earth, um, whatever human agency you have, and Christ doesn't forbid you to call your father a father. I mean, in you know, in your house, your family. Uh, it all has its origin in God, and the people need to submit to God and his law in their exercise of authority. So, in other words, you have one teacher, you have one father, you have one origin of truth, and that's God himself. We had a caller who was unable to stay on the line, and uh, their question was, is there a time that is best to ask a priest to bless a medal of St. Michael. Uh, and he asked because he was scolded by a priest that he asked right after Mass. Uh, no, I wouldn't say there's a time that's best. But you, you need to remember that priests are people too. And sometimes they're rushing from one thing to another. And, you know, to have to stop and do this blessing... Some can consider to be, um, what would you say, um, inconvenient at the moment. Um, I, I, of course, think everybody should, when you ask for a blessing, you should get it. But I know myself, you know, I'm trying to do something or trying to talk to somebody. Would you please bless this? Okay, give it to me. And I just bless it and hand it back to them. But it's it's very hard sometimes because you're distracted by other things and to just have to stop for an instant and do this. I can almost always tell when people are coming up to ask me to bless an object. And I don't mind doing it personally, but some priests, they do consider it an imposition. Also, I, I think I should take this moment to say that uh, a priest got... Um, impatient because they were in the middle of doing something and someone asked to do something else. Is there anybody on earth that does not happen to? And for some reason they expect us to just stop everything we're doing for that moment and do it. Well, I don't mind doing it, at least not usually, but for sometimes it is. And don't take it seriously. Uh, you need to just... Um, try to find another moment or even just wait a minute or two. Uh, sometimes I have to say, just give me a minute, I'll be with you. You know, I can't do it this instant, okay? Well, oh, he has scolded me, he wouldn't let me do it. Well, uh, we're not perfect, okay? <laughs> 
Um, Allison has a question, a follow-up to our discussion earlier. She says, God says in the Bible that if you confess your sins, he forgets them. Why then do we still have purgatory? Because we don't forget them. <laughs> uh, the soul, Purgatory is, ends when the soul is satisfied that they've experienced the resolution of their ego. Uh, look, if, if you were told tomorrow that you were going to meet Elvis or, uh, you know, the Queen of England, it depends on who, who you, you, you're a gaga over, okay? Would you just rush in there and never change your clothes and never look nice or any of those things? No. Does the other person care? Well, <clears throat> they may if it's a matter of court protocol or something like that. But obviously they don't care that much except for thinking you might be gauche and impolite. Uh, again, we need to realize that we have this issue. Anyone who's honest with themselves and has any self-knowledge knows that there are times when they can be monsters to other people. And if you've carried it throughout your life, you go back over your life and you examine your conscience you say, gee, I sure hope Jesus doesn't see me like this <laughs> when I get die. So you want to resolve this, and, and you try to do it on earth, but if you can't, you do it after death. And God is satisfied when the soul is satisfied. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call. Anywhere in North America, we've still got time for your calls at 833-288-3986. David says, something that's always confused me. If Jesus is God, why does he pray to God the Father? It seems like he's praying to himself. Well, that's that means you don't really believe in the Trinity, right? Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, he's not the Father, he's the Son. All right. So uh, the son, of course, proceeds from the father, but he's not the same person. So Christ's divine personhood is the same as God the Father in nature. But the term father is used to express the distinction between the father and the son. And the father didn't become incarnate. And the Holy Spirit didn't come incarnate. Only our Lord became incarnate. So not only in his human nature, but also in his divine nature, he's not addressing the general uh, um, one in being, which is God, of which he, of course, is equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit, but he's addressing the distinction of persons. No one does the Father's will but the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Well, that's what they call the missions of the Trinity. It expresses the fact that the Father does nothing without the Son, and that's not only true on earth, it's also true in heaven. Uh, next up is the great state of Florida. Maria is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Maria, you're on with Father Brian. Okay, my, my, hi, Father Brian. Hi. My question is, can a lay person touch the Eucharist and do the expo uh, to expose it, to put it on the monstrance? Um, I don't believe so, no. Uh, now, especially. Um, as the touching the Eucharist, of course, you do that when you give communion in the hand. But as for exposing it in the monstrance, that's a liturgical practice. 
which is oriented toward, well, it should be oriented in a sense toward benediction. And uh, they can, um, well, uh, you know, they can put it in there, I suppose, but they couldn't do benediction or anything like that. Um, I know um, several orders of sisters that have adoration, and one of the, if the priest isn't present and can't be, one of the sisters just puts the Eucharist in the monstrance. So I guess it, it can be done, yeah. Mm -hmm. We've got another first-time caller. Kyle is in Dallas, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Kyle, you're on with Father Brian. Uh, Father Brian, uh, good afternoon. My question is, uh, in regards to the uh, commandment of honor your father and your mother, does that pertain to step-parents? And if so... What would your suggestion be for that? Well, if the set parents are exercising governance over you of any kind, um, yes, by extension, that would be the case. It wouldn't be as serious as before the natural parent because the basis for the commandment is that the parents gave you life and that you're trying to repay them for the life which is given them through the virtue of piety. A step-parent wouldn't totally participate in that, although if, of course, they're seeking to support you, um, you know, you're still living at home and they're taking care of you, then you do owe them a certain kind of respect, too. Remember, the virtue of piety isn't only about your immediate family, but it's also about your extended family, and it's also about the state. Um, it's also about teachers, uh, anyone who's participated in your life in such a way that you cannot repay them falls under the virtue of piety. We head next to Saginaw, Michigan, where Brian is listening on Ave Maria Radio. Brian, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. I uh, read for Miss Sociology that the uh, grace, as you were speaking of before, that we receive a baptism, um, and then they compare the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit to the Beatitudes, uh, the, the last two Beatitudes, uh, the they put down to what's called supernatural grace. And I've read it, but I haven't talked about it. Can you expound on that a little bit, please? Who's they? Um, you said they put them down. Yeah, I read John of the Cross and a Bernard of Clairvoy. Clairvaux. Uh, that's, I'm not aware that that's their teaching because most of them both follow uh, St. Augustine's treatise in which he uh, tries to show a whole um, organization of the Christian life. First of all, through the virtues, the natural virtues, which would be wisdom, science, and understanding, uh, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Then the supernatural virtues, which correspond to that. Then to the gift, seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are sanctifying. And since there are seven, they correspond to seven of the Beatitudes. And then the eighth Beatitude is about you know suffering for the other seven. So that's the mystical theology I'm most familiar with. And I'm pretty sure John of the Cross doesn't disagree with that. I haven't read St. Bernard on the subject, but I doubt that he does either. 
because the, as I say, the primary origin for this distinction all comes through St. Augustine. Does that help, Brian? You haven't heard the word supernatural grace versus sanctifying grace is what I'm getting around to. No, there's no such thing. They're both supernatural. They're both identical. And I read St. John of the Cross. I don't recall any distinction between supernatural grace and sanctifying grace. They're both the same. You won't find the supernatural grace distinguished from sanctifying grace in the catechism. In fact, you find them identified. And we'll head to New Orleans, Louisiana. David, we've just got a couple minutes left with Father Brian Milady. What's your question today? Uh, very quickly. So, so this is actually in regards to confirmation. Um, uh, this has come up. So uh, the question is, um, how do we know when an Old Testament character would be considered a saint? So, for instance, if somebody is uh, choosing a saint name for confirmation, how do we know whether or not that name would be considered a saint? And then secondly, is somewhat related, uh, why don't we call the Old Testament characters uh, saints? Well, the answer to your second question is easy. We do. Um, we, uh, the Carmelite Order, for example, has a feast of St. Eliah. And a lot of the Old Testament feasts, St. David, etc., come from the Eastern Church, but the Western Church also practices them. So St. David, for example, I, I believe, is the King David. I could be mistaken about that, but I believe he's the patron saint of Wales. And uh, there's a whole bunch of um, usages in that regard. We don't tend to celebrate them as in calendar, liturgical calendar, partially because we have so many saints already. <laughs> but there is Saint, uh, the Eastern Church uh, venerates St. Adam and St. Eve, too. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great uh, Thursday of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together then, God bless.